The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and 1077 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it's, as always, been a very, very busy week in technology. Um, Google Project Zero is increasing the time to fix Windows. This really is something that's making developers a lot happier. And somebody did a study on Wikipedia, and they concluded that it's the most reliable source of information on the Internet. That's interesting. Who would have thought that? I know. Amazon devices are now going to start sharing your internet connection with your neighbors Great. unless you opt out of a special new program. Now, why would it, I'm sure you're going to get into, the, into this, but that sounds like a complete safety disaster. Uh, yeah, it is. I've already opted out. I'll Good. explain how to do all that. Uh, ransomware now hit another big company, a, fl- a food supply company, and now meat packers all over the world are having trouble. Uh, you know, doing their job until they solve this ransomware problem. And uh, if you ever traveled around the world, like and stayed in a hotel and you sign on to a Wi-Fi network, you want to be careful that you don't sign on to the evil twin Wi-Fi network. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll explain what that means when we get a little bit later in the show. This week, we're going to feature the man who developed Bluetooth communication. Jacobus Cornelius Hartson, probably a name that you don't hear that often, but he's the man who's the inspiration behind Bluetooth. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. Where did he go? He's not. Wait a minute. Try it again. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. It's not your fault. One of the computers is not working. We will just continue onward then. We got email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Schertz. iOS 4.5 was a recent Apple update. Now I notice that a few of the apps on my iPad, fifth generation, are useless because the developer didn't uh, didn't update the apps. Do you know of, of any workaround for this dilemma? I can't revert to an older iOS platform uh, that I know of. Things will probably get worse when iOS 15 comes out. My iPhone 6S won't even handle the 15. Great information on Tech Talk. Really enjoy the podcast. Thanks, Arnie. Well, Arnie, uh, it is possible to revert to an older operating system, but it would require a clean install, which means after you've installed it, it, it would be a blank a blank device, a blank iPad or a blank iPhone. And then you'd have to, you could restore all the apps if you had a backup from that older 
operating system, you could you could you could you could basically restore your device from an old backup. Now, I would not recommend this at all because you're leaving yourself open to security bugs that these uh, updates fix, and you, you're extremely vulnerable. Uh, now, if you uh, choose to revert to the old one, to the old one, there are several websites that you could that will walk you through the process, and they actually have copies of the uh, of the operating system there that are signed by Apple that you can download. But I just say d just don't do it. Um, now, one thing when a new operating system comes out, frequently the apps, uh, many of the apps are buggy because they haven't had a lot of users use them. The developers create the they update the apps, and they've tested it, but it hasn't been widely tested by the uh, user community. As soon as the uh, new operating system comes out, and uh, and they um, and people start using the app, they find the bugs really fast. So within a month or so, these apps get fixed, pretty much so. So that's one reason why I tend to wait a little bit before I download the latest and greatest uh, uh, operating system for my for my uh, phone or my computer. Um, that is unless there's some critical security update that I've got to really, really take care of. Now, the, the thing you have to worry about for your iPhone 6S, though, Arnie, is, uh, is how long is um, Apple going to support it? Now, the iPhone 6S, it was actually, they discontinued uh, uh, sale of that in the fall of 2018. Now, normally, Apple will support a device for five years after they start stop selling it. So that means you should get hardware support until 2023. After that, your uh, iPhone 6S is toast. But I suspect you're going to want to upgrade that iPhone anyway because, uh, you know, the, the new iPhones are so much better. And you probably have a battery lifetime problem with the 6S. Anyway, that's what I had. We got an email from James Messick. Dear Tech Talk, I believe the drone insurance that you have only works if you still possess the drone. So if it drowns, you need to go skin diving to retrieve it. Enjoy the podcast, James Messick. Well, James, uh, normally uh, insurance pro programs w would work that way, especially for iPhones. But it turns out this DJI drone insurance insures it if I lose the drone. If it handles flyaways, if it just... I lose control of it and it just flies away and I can't find it. It handles if it sinks, they replace it. Now, they don't replace the uh, the controller on my for my drone. They only replace the drone itself. So the drone controller combo uh, it, it costs around $1000 for the DJI Air 2S that I have. But the drone the controller alone is around 750. So so the drone, the drone itself doesn't have any smarts built into it. It's all built into the app on the phone. Uh, so the drone itself is about 250, and they replace it even if it's a flyaway. Now I've, I've, I just came back from Wisconsin. I was flying it all over the place, all over water, all over, and um, I could have lost it, but I didn't. And uh, and having that insurance just makes me a lot more comfortable to fly my drone in risky places. Oh. I also discovered, you know, because I, I was flying in uh, Madison, uh, the lake there in Madison, which is not too far from the um, airport, and 
there were severe restrictions on height. I could not go above 150 feet because of airspace restrictions. And as soon as I, as soon as the drone gets its GPS location, it downloads the latest, uh, the, the latest um, uh, FAA regulations for that area and restricts my flight to whatever those regulations are. And the only way you can bypass it is if you have a permit that lets you do that. So there are certain people that say that are doing work with drones and they need to go beyond that, but they have been trained to do it safely. They can actually apply for a permit that allows them to violate the FAA standards, but I have to put the permit number into the DJI application in order to, to do that. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc Jim and the ubiquitous Mr. Big Voice. He's not so ubiquitous today, ubiquitous today, No, we're Jim. trying to figure out where he went. Yeah. Everything's uh, everything's there on the computer, but for whatever reason, that computer is not playing audio. And Andrew and I are in here with uh, mallets and a hacksaw trying to figure it out. Very good. Well, you keep working so on that. So that's why I'm quiet. We're working on that. You, I you press forward, young man. Is- Uh, I guess this is just a start and to be completely expected. I found some website with a artificial intelligent art. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I thought you you figure that you figure this would be coming. It's, and it's called emotive art by artificial intelligence. And the, the subtitle is unique AI art that will stir your emotions. You can go to www.art. AIgallery.com and take a look at some of their art. What do you think, Doc? All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, AI is coming to art and it is coming fast. You see, we have all these paintings by Picasso and by Monet and many others, Rembrandt, and they can put all of those old paintings in as a training data set. And the AI systems can learn how the old masters painted. And they're then able to create new paintings in the style of old masters. And that is being developed really, really fast. Now, in fact, I'm even using some of this this AI art. I, I like to do a lot of digital photography. So I'm using an application that actually analyzed old painters and they created filters for my pictures and I can convert my picture into what looks like a painting in the style of an old master. So I'm taking my digital photographs, running them through this filter and I'm printing them on canvas and these look like paintings. It's amazing. The app I'm using, by the way, is Prisma. P-R-I-S-M-A. I really enjoy using that app. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm now converting a lot of, my, uh, a lot of my, di- my favorite digital photos into artwork with Prisma. So you can, you can download that app uh, on the iPhone or Android phone. It's, you gotta, it's free for uh, three days. And then uh, you have to pay $2.99 a month on a subscription. So it's kind of expensive, but I'm telling you, 
it, it really works well. But you could just get it for a month, say. You convert all the pictures you want, and then you could just cancel the subscription and only get the subscription whenever you have work to do. We got an email from Lily in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm trying to send my photos to Costco to be printed on Canvas. I cannot upload any of them because they are live photos and Costco will, will only accept the JPEG format. What are my options, Lily and Fairfax? Well, Lily, um, the iPhone has, when you take pictures, you can. it has an option called live photos, and it basically, it's like a little movie that's right at the, at, right at the front of your photo. It's actually a series of, of photographs that are played very quickly, so you see a little bit of movement, and then it finally locks on the final, the, uh, the, the, the final picture, and it's stable. So the live photo is a different format than a JPEG. So what, what you want to do is you want to pick what key photo you want. So as you go through, you, you can click on edit it. And then you can, in the edit mode, you'll see that you can click through each of the different uh, pictures that are in the live sequence. And you pick the one that you want to keep permanently and make that the key frame. Select that as the key. Um, by default, um, Apple just picks the last frame as the key frame. But frequently, if there are expressions involved, another frame could be a better key frame. So once you select the key frame that you like, then there's a share button. It's the, it's the little rectangle with the, uh, with the uh, arrow coming out the top. Click the share button, and there's something called duplicate. So you can click duplicate, and then you have a choice. You can either duplicate as a live photo or duplicate as a JPEG. So you simply duplicate it as a JPEG, and it will take the keyframe and save it as a JPEG, as a JPEG, which is the standard format for photographs. And you can upload that JPEG to the Costco site to make your to make your uh, your canvases. Uh, we got an email from Alex in Richmond. Dear Doc and Jim, I travel frequently on business to other countries. The problem is every time I uh, log into Google, it takes me to the local Google site. Like if I'm in Germany, it takes me to the German Google site. And really, for my work, I've, I just need the U.S. the U.S. site. Is there any way that I could just automatically come up with the U.S. Google site even when I'm in another country? Yeah. I've got the same problem too, Alex. When I go to India, India's got a big Amazon presence there. I always get the Indian site, but uh, I, I've got to I got to come back and get on to the uh, and get onto the American site. But what you can do, you can set it up so it will always select the 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 American site. You see, there's a setting in there. You can either say your current region or you can select a region that doesn't change. And so chances are in that settings, you're selecting for the current region. So you move to a different region of the world, it will bring up Google for that current region. So if you're on your laptop or desktop computer, which it sounds like you are, you, you simply click on settings in the lower right-hand corner of the window when you're on, when you're on Google, uh, and then uh, click on search settings, scroll down to the region settings, and uh, and then click show more, and then you'll see where you can have like um, current region, or you'll have a list of regions. Select the United States, and then save. Then 
Uh, it's a similar process on the mobile device. Uh, now, Google will now provide you with search results from the American index instead of from the one that where the country that you're in. Uh, and if you want to go back to have the uh, Google follow you around the world, just go back and change that to current region. We got an email from uh, Richard in Madison. Dear Tech Talk, I'm planning to buy a new laptop and give my old laptop to my daughter. What I'm looking for is a simple way to transfer my files from one computer to the other. Uh, is it possible to do it just with a USB cable? That would be the easiest. Well, there are two ways you could do it. You could copy the files to a um, to a uh, you know to a USB hard drive, and, and then you could plug the USB hard drive into the new laptop and copy it from the USB hard drive to the laptop. That's how I've typically done it. But you don't have to do that. You could actually just plug a uh, a um, USB cable between them, but you have to use a special cable. You can't use a straight cable because you because you're basically going to have to switch the the transmitter and receiver connectors if you want to connect two together. And so um, you need a USB bridge cable. That's what it's called, the USB bridge cable, and it has the connections reversed as they have to be if you're going to connect one to the other. And they're not that expensive. There's one from Pluggable. That's the name of the company, Pluggable, with one G. It's a USB 2.0 transfer cable. It's $24.95 on Amazon. And you just plug it in, and then you can just copy the files from one computer to the other. We got an email from Peter in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I see many forms on websites that have a button that says, click here to prove that you're human, not a robot. Now, that doesn't really seem like it's proving anything. Why? Why would they have something more sophisticated to prove that you're that you're not a robot, uh, Peter and Fairfax? Well, that single button captcha challenge, where you just click this if you're not a robot. Uh, what it does, I mean, obviously you could write a script that could get through that quite easily. But what they found is that that simple captcha, where you just click, yes, I'm not a robot gets a high percentage of the bots that are out there. It stops them. Now, some get through, but it doesn't, it doesn't get rid of all of them, but it gets rid of most of them. And so the developers think that's good enough. You see, it's a trade-off because they do have these other captures where you've got to, you look at this, uh, these pictures and you have to identify, is there a boat in the picture? Or is there a car in the picture or a tree in the picture? And that is just a pain in the neck. Sometimes it's just a part of a car, and then you, you, you don't get it, and you've got to go back and try it again and again. And that's a horrible user experience. So what they're doing, they're trading off user experience for effectiveness, and that's the trade that they've gone with. And I'm, I'm happy with it. And apparently the, the developers are happy with it because they're screening out most of the, most of the bots. We got an email from uh, Bob in uh, Maryland. Dear Doc Jim, this is a second email from Bob, by the way. This is a very special day. Isn't there a limit? Uh, there is a limit, and th this is, is the limit. Is it two? The second email, yeah. Two this, is the this limit. This would be the limit. Wow, it's a good thing Bob didn't send three emails. Because, well, I and, I and I only allowed it because he's always praising Mr. Big Voice. I mean, he calls the ever suave Mr. Big Voice. He is the only fan of Mr. Big Voice. Yeah, I, th I think... Especially I, today, since Mr. Big Voice didn't show up. What do we do? Do we did we suspend him? Do we dock him? What do we do? Yeah, I think we'll have to dock him, okay. uh, for right. sure. I think we'll, we'll dock him. Uh, we'll dock him uh, 
to pay for two shows for every show that he misses. It's Double Doc. <laughs> double Doc. Yeah, we'll, give, we'll give him a Double Doc. Uh, dear Doc Jim and the ever suave Mr. Big Voice, I noticed that Vitalik Buterin, the Ethernet co-founder, burned $6.6 billion worth of Shiba tokens. It's uh, now, uh, you know, that was kind of a shock to me that according to CoinMarketCap, that's quite a normal transaction. And it's typically carried out by the development team that, uh, that actually developed the cryptocurrency. The most common way to burn crypto tokens is by send, sending them what's called a, an eater address. That's basically a, a wallet. Uh, it's the address of a wallet that nobody has the password to. So once they get in the wallet, nobody can retrieve them. Uh, and that's what he did. What's going on here, Doc? All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, uh, cryptocurrency is in a blockchain, so it, you know there's you, you you can't get rid of the evidence that it ever existed because the blockchain stores the information. So you simply can't delete a crypto coin from the blockchain. And what and development teams when they're starting to you know develop cryptocurrency, they have to test it out, make certain it's working. So they end up mining quite a bit of cryptocurrency right in the beginning to, just to validate their software. Now. If they're trying to protect the market value of the of the cryptocurrency, then they don't they don't want to just have all that available for release on the market. So they'll typically burn it uh, once because they want it. Their goal is to get is get the crypto going because they want the cryptocurrency to have enough value so that miners have an incentive to validate the blockchain. Their goal is to have blockchain validation, and if they undermine the crypto market, then they won't get miners to validate the blockchain. So it's it's very commonly done. Uh, it was probably done in the case of Bitcoin too, because there's a lot of unaccounted for Bitcoins, and nobody knows where they are. They're they're probably put them put sent to an Ether address too. Nobody really knows. Now Shiba Inu is a cryptocurrency token that was named after a dog breed. That's the same mascot of another popular cryptocurrency, Dogecoin, that Elon Musk has been talking a lot about. Now this, and Dogecoin was started uh, as kind of a joke and has become popular with the meme crowd. These are meme crypto investors. Now Shiba Inu is a decentralized cryptocurrency that was created August of 2020 by an anonymous person known as Royoshi. Now, Shiba Inu token is built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. So it's a token built on the Ethereum blockchain. The Shiba token does not have any smart contract ability built in, nor is it backed by any asset or rights. It's simply a transferable token. Now, the Shiba Inu market is already more than $3.8 billion as of June 2021, making it the 31st largest cryptocurrency by market cap. In a sense, though, it's quite small, you know, compared to other cryptocurrencies. And one, one uh, Shiba token is worth about, uh, you know, one trillionth of a cent. Very tiny amount. Maybe it's one billionth of a cent, which makes it attractive for new investors because they could they could buy a lot of uh, Shiba tokens for not much money. Um, uh, and so people, some people are, are actually buying it. Uh, it. You might remember that uh, Vitalik Buterin donated 50 trillion Shiba tokens to India for, for COVID crypto relief for, in a COVID crypto relief fund. That, 
50 trillion uh, tokens of Shiba were worth about a billion dollars, and he contributed that to India for for uh, for the COVID relief. That was quite a nice thing to do. So I'm quite certain that uh, that uh, Vitalik Buterin knows who the founder of the Shiba Inu uh, cryptocurrency is. Uh, Listen, we love your emails. We Email do. us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. This is Federal News Network on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, heard southwest of Washington on 107.7 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. You can learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. You know, it's amazing. When you threaten him with loss of pay, he just shows up. What? What a surprise. Mm -hmm. Yes, today we're going to feature Jacobus Cornelius Hartson. Jacobus Cornelius Hartson, as his uh, parents called him, is a Dutch electrical engineer best known as father of Bluetooth communications. Now, his friends call him Jap, J-A-A-P, maybe Jop. Probably Jop. Yeah. Jop. I'd go with Jop. Jop Hartson. Yeah, they call him Jop Hartson, J-A-A-P Hartson. He was born February 13, 1963, in The Hague, Netherlands. In 1986, he got a master's uh, degree in electrical engineering with, with honors from Delft University of Technology. He then worked briefly for Siemens in The Hague and Philips in Eindhoven. In 1990, he received a PhD in electrical engineering from Delft University of Technology with honors. Now, his thesis dealt with the design of programmable filters in silicon surface acoustic wave devices. 
It's, it's an interesting technology. We used to play around. That. I used to play around some of that a long time ago. In 1991, he was hired by Ericsson, working in Durham, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And, um, and uh, you know, of course, Ericsson was a big uh, mobile phone company. In 1993, he was transferred to the Ericsson Mobile Division in Lund, Sweden. So he went back there, went back to Sweden, and he was in the mobile now, Sweden, and back in that in the day, there was no good way. There was no, was no way to connect your phone to anything, really. And they wanted to find a way to have shortwave radio communication for the phone. They thought it would, Ericsson thought it would make their phone a, a give them a competitive advantage. So he was tasked with finding solutions for short-range radio. This would be short-range, like three meters to four meters. Uh, separation between the devices to set up a uh, short range radio communication between mobile devices. And it had to be cheap and it had to be very low power. So it wouldn't eat up battery. Now, because the frequency band that they used, it's, it, it was like a uh, unlicensed band that was used for all sorts of other consumer devices. They were sharing it with, all, with, with, with a lot of other people. I mean, including Wi-Fi. Because the um, frequency band was shared by many consumer devices, he initially decided to use frequency hopping, and he would hop through the band, and that way he would pick a frequency that there was no interference on. That's and that's that was how he would would do it. Now the Bluetooth devices changed frequency within the designated band around uh, 1,600 times a second. There are 79 frequencies, by the way, and it changes frequency 16. 1,600 times a second. And really? so when when a Bluetooth device is listening, it listens basically because it wants to be low power in the listening mode. It only listens on one of the bands. And uh, it will listen on one of the bands, and then it will shut off. And two seconds later, it will listen on that band again, and then shut off. Two seconds later, listen on the band. That way, it's very low power. Now, if a device is trying to make a connection to another Bluetooth device, they have to wake it up out of that two-second listen mode. So a device which is trying to make a connection will transmit in all frequency bands, all 79 frequencies, in a burst. And they'll, and they'll do that for, and then they'll stop, and then they'll do another burst. And they'll do that for 10 minutes. So that uses a lot of power. And then the listening guy will eventually hear one of those bursts. He's listening on one band, and then he wakes up. And then they start doing the negotiation of what frequency band are they going to communicate on, which one has the lowest noise. Now, Dr. Hartson was working pretty much alone on, on this system, and this frequency hopping was really working quite well. I mean, he, he got a proof of concept going. It, it was quickly built. And then... Uh, Erickson said, look, this is looking pretty good. Let's, let's get a team so we can scale this thing up. So 1995, he was joined by uh, the second member of the team, Sven Madison. Now, eventually, the team grew to about 30 people. Now, the name of this device, now just remember this, the name of this device was the Multi-Communicator Link. The Multi-Communicator Link, MCL. Why would you want people to remember that? I don't know what it, I mean. Obviously, it was designed by a um, engineer, multi-communicator link. Huh? I'll have to and, write that down. Uh, I don't know. And then, uh, and so they uh, they were basically by 1997, they had a workable solution for MCL, the multi-communicator link. 
And but then Ericsson decided they've got to collaborate with other firms. They it's very important to collaborate with other firms because they if they're the only ones that have this <laughs> Bluetooth, they won't have anybody to talk to. So they decided they to bring in other firms. And so they firmed. So in 1998, they formed a special interest group. There were five founding members, Ericsson, Nokia, Intel, Toshiba, and IBM. Intel was selected as the lead because they were viewed as sort of uh, technology agnostic, and they would take ideas from everyone. So they thought that was probably the best thing. Now, Jim Kardash represented Intel. And, and Jim came to uh, Jop, and he said, you know, Jop, this multi-communicator link name is not very good. I think we should change it. And he said, I've got an idea. So Kardash Kardic came up with the idea of Bluetooth. Now, and it was named after Harold Bluetooth, who was a 10th century Danish king who united Denmark. And, and, and the symbol for Bluetooth are the initials of Harold Bluetooth. Those, that's, that's the symbol for Bluetooth. And, of course, the idea is that Bluetooth will unite all these electronic devices uh -huh. like Harold Bluetooth united Denmark. Now, Hart, Dr. Hartson, uh, a job, he had five patents that were fundamental to Bluetooth standard. In total, he's filed on, uh, filed on more than 200 patents, not all of them on Bluetooth. So what, it, what they did when they formed the SIG, all of the patents were put in a pool so anybody that was a member of the special interest group could use the technology in those patents. That was extremely important. So even though the patents were, were held by Job, even though they were owned by Ericsson, they, gave, they licensed those patents to everybody else in the SIG in order to make Bluetooth you know, a viable technology. In 1991, Bluetooth 1.0 was released. In 2000, the first mobile phones with Bluetooth appeared, as did the first PC cards, as well as Bluetooth mice, Bluetooth keyboards, and USB dongles. So by 2000, Bluetooth was on the move. In 2001, the first Bluetooth-enabled printers, laptops, and car kits were introduced. By 2011, the special interest group had grown from five members to 15,000 member firms. Uh, and by that time, Bluetooth 4.0 was released. Now, between 2000 and 2008, Jop uh, Hartson was a, a part-time professor at the University of Twent. The University of Twent. He taught mobile uh, radio communication systems. In 2010, he became CTO of Tonalite in the Netherlands, a company that creates wearable, uh, wearable wireless products. In 2012, he was hired by Plantronics as a senior expert in wireless systems. He's still working at Plantronics, by the way. They make wireless headsets. In 2015, he was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. So there you go. Everything you need to know about Jacobus Cornelius Hardson, the father of Bluetooth. We hope you're indeed paying attention because your chance to turn knowledge into free food very soon will come up when we play the pop quiz.
You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. This is Federal News Network, heard on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, Loudoun County, 104.5 FM, and southwest of D.C. on the powerful signal, 107.7 FM HD2. Learn more about the the programs at Stratford University and how you can become a student by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I just love all that applause. Yes, I know. In fact, they wouldn't shut up. I just love it, you know. And, of course, I'm welcoming everyone back to Classroom of the Airways. And we have to evaluate whether the class has been listening. And we do that with a pop quiz. That's our uh, assessment tool. And what we do with the pop quiz, if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you get A-plus for today's class. And you also get two tickets to fine dining when our dining room's open. And we're getting close to that opening, I think. It's looking pretty good. Great. So earlier in the show, I talked about uh, Jacobus Cornelius Hartz. And he, of course, is the father of Bluetooth. Now, we all know the name Bluetooth. But before Bluetooth, the Bluetooth name was proposed, it had another very, very technical name that that Jop Hardson came up with. What was the original name of the Bluetooth technology? If you know the answer to today's question, pick up your phone, give us a call. Dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're standing next to a brand new pile of empty oyster shells east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. there. If you're frequently hopping while brushing your blue teeth Rick, in... you're there. Hang on. Okay. Call us on the wild card line. 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. 
No longer sanitize hourly because all safety protocols and all vectors and sectors have now been met. Mass not required. 877-9-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. See, you couldn't hear Mr. Big Voice because, no, because he was him. playing out of the same computer that you're on because somebody screwed up the board. So, oh, anyway, I that's apologize for the confusion there. But we're, you know what? We've been doing this together 14 years, and every day we learn something new. It's always something new. That's it, what makes radio so exciting. It, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone. This kind of stuff. Sky. This is what's Rivers happening. Oh my goodness! There's something else coming out. Human sacrifice. Dogs this is what cats this is what happens together. around here. Dogs and cats living together. Anyway, uh, so uh, but let's continue on. Uh, we will get uh, somebody calling us here very shortly with the answer. Okay, let's talk about Google a Project Zero increases the time to fix Windows. See now, Google Project Zero, they have got a security arm, and they and they basically try to look for software vulnerabilities. They they try to look for Project Zero Day vulnerabilities. These are vulnerabilities vulnerabilities that no one has discovered, and they were in the software on the day it was released. And um, there are no fixes for it. And if uh, if uh, somebody uses, gets a zero day vulnerability. Yes. You now what's, what what are we doing now? <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm I'm trying to preview what we're playing next, and I, I messed it up. Go ahead. Okay. So now what there it used to be that they would announce the vulnerability uh, after a 30-day wait period. So they would tell the company, hey, I found this vulnerability in 30 days. We're going to announce it to the world, so you better fix it. Well, it turns out that this 30-day window was just too short. The companies couldn't fix it fast enough. And there was like a, uh, a uh, you know, there was like an issue with them. And so they, uh, companies began to complaining to the Zero Group. They said, so now what they're going to do, they're going to actually extend the period to 90 days. So people will have more time to fix the vulnerability. And uh, people are very, very, very happy about that, actually. Okay. All right. We have somebody who'd like to play the game. Let's okay. go to line one. MC, good morning. Calling from Silver Spring. How are you, sir? Yeah, just fine. Good morning, Doc and Jim. All right, Doc, Good go ahead morning. And ask question. Early Thank in the you. show, I talked about Jacobus Cornelius Hardson, uh, who, of course, father of Bluetooth. But what was the original name of the uh, of 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 the uh, of the co- communication technology before it had the Bluetooth name? That's the MCL, Multi Communicator Link. Yep. Correct. Very good. Excellent. Thank you for checking in today, MC. We're going to send that prize right out to you. It is Saturday morning. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network. A variety of dial positions around the area, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2. In Loudoun County, on 104.5 FM, 107.7 FM HD2, southwest of D.C. You can go to Stratford University and find out how you can become a student at Stratford. Stand by. We'll have more Tech Talk coming up. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. 
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Oh, yeah, I just love that door. Different day, same door. I know, I just love that door. I just sit down here and meditate in my <laughs> bunker. Uh, just don't get your foot week, caught in it, all right? And this, yeah, we need oil, I suspect. Uh, that's one thing we need. But this week, I've been thinking about standards and standard groups. I started thinking about it because, you know, thinking about Bluetooth and how successful that's been and why the success was really, uh, you know, grounded in the fact that they had a strong standards group. Nearly everything has standards. Uh, I mean, if you go to the wall plug where you plug in something, that's a standard so that all plugs are the same. Can you imagine if we didn't have a standard and none of the plugs matched? Oh, that'd be crazy. You know well, which it, plug to get? In a way, we don't because when you go to a foreign country, they have a different standard. They have a different standard. Why, yeah. now, why? But at least the country has all one standard. Right. But why it's has not, that never been but, standardized? So the plugs are not a, an international standard. Certainly, that's more of a uh, uh, regional standard. Right. Now, Bluetooth turned out to be an international standard. It's the same anywhere, anywhere in the world. And the standard groups are really, really important. So a standard, basically, it's a document, first of all, and it provides requirements and specifications and guidelines or characteristics that can be used consistently to ensure that the materials or the products or the processes or the service are all fit for their purpose. Now, standards allow technology to work seamlessly and establish trust so that markets can operate smoothly. I mean, we had the Bluetooth standard, so anybody that makes a Bluetooth device, and if they put that Bluetooth logo on there, you know that it's going to work with your other Bluetooth devices because they're all satisfying the same standard. And they can't put that logo on unless they meet the standard. And we've got standards for every IT feature, every IT interface that is out there. They provide a common language to measure and evaluate performance. They make interoperability possible. They protect consumers by ensuring safety, durability, and market, market equity. Now, they, I use them when I'm teaching technology to predict the future because standards change relatively slowly. It takes time for standards to come out. So you can look at the standards that are now just being formulated 
and you can predict where technology will be in 10 years. I mean, it just uh, technology doesn't really move as fast as people think it does, only if you're not keeping track of the standards and the development. Right. It takes typically, uh, you know, 10 years to go from a from a, a nascent a technology with the development of standards till it's widely deployed. I mean, it, there's it's a it, it's a fairly uh, fairly slow process. So if you look at the standards, you can really predict where where technology will be. So I tend to look at the standard groups and look at the latest standards that they're talking about, and then I know where things are where things are going in the future. Now the now the Bluetooth special interest group, which we talked about today, they are now up to thirty six thousand companies, by the way, and they. And they harmonize the whole Bluetooth community. If you want to see how sort of a, a standard works, you can go to the Bluetooth Special Inter Interest Group website, and you can look around and see how they operate, see how the standards go. You, you can see the standards they're working on, so you know where, where Bluetooth will be in five years. You can go to www.bluetooth.com and, and learn about those standards. And if you're in technology, you really want to become well-versed in all the standards groups for the, the, the internet standards, the networking standards, the, I mean, they, they even have standards for, uh, for robotics, robotic standards. So the more you know about standards, the more you're going to be able to project where technology is going. So there we go. And it all came from the really rousing success of Bluetooth that brought up all the standards discussion. So, you know, mm. uh, at some point, everything becomes obsolete. What do you think will replace Bluetooth, or, or is it a long way away because it's such a new thing? I, <clears throat> it'll be a while before Bluetooth is replaced, I think. I mean, it's, it's using in the, in the, uh, it's in the, uh, you know, the open communication band. <clears throat> I think Bluetooth is going to be here for a good long while. Good. I have a lot of I Bluetooth could see, stuff. I could see where we might get uh, replace Bluetooth with optical communication, hmm. for instance. I could see where we might, you know, because now if you have optical communication, uh, you can get much higher speeds, and you, uh, you, you're also not subject to eavesdropping. But with optical communication, you, you have to be uh, uh, in line of sight, so what, right. what they're what they're talking about with optical communication, for instance, you you could be in a room, and uh, the your light bulb could be modulated. Let's say it's an LED; it could be modulated. An LED could be modulated, and that could serve as like a Wi-Fi router. And then your phone would pick up that optical signal from the light bulb. So you could actually have every light bulb in the house. Uh, you know, carrying uh, your the signal for your internet that that would connect to your cell phone. So I I think probably uh, if there's going to be a replacement, it's going to go to optics. So that's where I would think it'll be a while. It'll be light tooth or white tooth. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, light tooth. Yeah, I could see that. Now. Wikipedia. Let's talk about Wikipedia. You know, everybody, you know, you've heard your teacher saying, well, Wikipedia is not a primary source. Well, it used to it, be that way, right? I mean, it yeah. used to be that anybody could get in there and change anything, but that's and not anything, the case. Anybody anymore. can change anything. I mean, I've run, I've run experiments on it. I, I, I've, I've, I've vetted, you know, I've got, I've got a couple of user accounts on Wikipedia. I go in and edit pages. There's but, a, I, I, when I, I decided I wanted to learn how the whole Wikipedia deal works. So I picked some, 
uh, rural town in Kansas, and I decided to start contributing stuff to that town. Mm -hmm. So I, I searched through all the history books about the town, and so I put in a whole lot of information about this town that was all grounded in references that I'd put in, and I, I kind of learned how the whole thing worked. And it was it was it was kind of an interesting experience because there was there was some guy that kept coming on there, and then I would put stuff in, and he wouldn't like it, and so we would go back and forth on it. And uh, but we ended up with I think a, a pretty good web page. I, I also ran an experiment one time. I uh, <clears throat> I was curious as to how long does it take bad information to be removed from the internet. So I went on to a a page. Uh, that you know, and and I put in some something ridiculous, you know, in in one, and I just went in there, did an edit. Anybody can edit it. Yeah. I added I added a sentence that was just totally ridiculous. I wasn't planning to leave it there. I just wanted to get an. Ex I just wanted to have an experiment, and I did it with a throwaway uh, username because I didn't want to besmirch my my username. Yeah, of with course, this, no. With this bad information, and. <laughs> I was I was curious at how long is it going to and it was gone within ten minutes. It's but amazing. See, I guess my people. My point people, was it, it can hmm? go in and change stuff, but there used to be no checks and balances on it, so, so that bad information could live along live for a while on on uh, Wikipedia. But that's not the case anymore. Well, it's not the case if it's if it's a well if it's a popular page that, mm -hmm. that a lot of people track. So what happens is that on these pages that are tracked, like like on on this page that I have for this town in Kansas, I'm notified whenever anybody changes it. So if anybody makes a change to that page, I get I get an email, and I get notified, and then I go back and check the page, and then I can see what the change was. Mm -hmm. And so uh, clearly on the page that I made the change, there were people that were tracking that page. They were notified that a change had been made, and they immediately went to the page and deleted it. So for that reason, because the information tends to be crowdsourced, the the uh, Wikipedia, you know, tends to be um, pretty reliable. So that so this woman uh, did did a uh, did some research. Her name was Professor Amy Brookman from the George Institute of Technology, and she started looking at uh, at the um, at the at Wikipedia. And, and she concluded that actually the information is pretty good. Like if you get a journal article, it's reviewed by three people, only three people. They review it. They say called peer-reviewed, and, and that's it. But the, a popular page on Wikipedia might be reviewed by thousands of people, and it just turns out that crowdsourcing ends up giving you better information. Now, where Wikipedia is not good is when you get ideological uh, wars going on okay so let's just say we would uh and and this is where they have uh editors that uh that moderate the the pages and this is where the editors come in suppose i would have a um a, a page on wikipedia say on gun rights mm -hmm. okay so you've got one group of people are proponents of the second amendment there should be everybody should be able to have a gun then you've got another group that says guns should be outlawed and so if you go on to, say, the, um, the gun rights page, whatever it might be called, there's going to be an ideological war where people are going to delete what the other guy says, and then they will put in their own thing, and, it'll just, and, the, and the page will flip-flop back and forth. Now, 
what they try to do as editors, they try to uh, have people put, instead of just deleting what the other person says, they, they, they try to get them to pose arguments so that you can see the pros and cons of it, and, uh, and both the pros and cons are left on the page. So when a page is subject to this flip-flop back and forth in these ideological wars, the page is frozen. And then a small editorial group will be assigned to that page to monitor additions to the page, and they will moderate it until it calms down. And that tends to be not a bad solution as long as, you know, as, as long as they, you know, they, they, they pick a fair-minded team to, to moderate it. But on things that are not controversial, just, you know, like— Like the Rick know, Shirt page. Like my page. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's no ideological things. It's just a matter of people want, want to make certain it's accurate information. Now, everything you put on the web page has to be referenced. So I cannot just write something and make it up. I actually have to have references that document what I say. So it's actually like an encyclopedia where I might add three sentences and I'll put a reference. You click on the reference and what I've said is documented in the reference. So everything is grounded in references and it's just not opinion. Mm -hmm. And so it's it actually turns out to be uh, turns out to be pretty good. So it's it's really like an encyclopedia. And if you write stuff down and don't put references, then the editors will put a comment on the page. This page needs more references, and they'll actually tell you where they'd like you to get the references. So they so they they they, they monitor it. And over time, Wikipedia has just gotten better and better and better. So what she has concluded, she said, even though people have varying levels of expertise, since so many people review it, the crowds, and since it's always based on reliable citations, her conclusion in her research is that the results are solid and that, uh, and that these are excellent references. Now, she did also say, if there's an unpopular page that nobody looks at, it's possible that they might be unreliable because there's not much crowdsourcing. So Wikipedia is really a successful experiment. And I, I just enjoy reading it. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'll typically go and look at the history on these pages to, just to see what's going on. Gotcha. We're out of time, Doc. Wow, this show really went fast. Listen, we'd like you to check uh, check out our website, www.stratford.edu. And Tell us that, that, tell that you heard about the programs there on Tech Talk Radio. And, of course, we want you to send us an email. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll answer that email as quickly as we can, and maybe even on the next show. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.